I thank the Buchanans for that. Nathan, thank you for your family. Don, and uh, the gift of music in this wonderful holiday season. Praise the Lord. If you would please turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and we will pick up where we departed last week. And we had found that Jonah had just been vomited up onto dry land immediately following his declaration that he would honor his ministry vow, that he would go and proclaim the message God was going to give to him, a message of judgment, impending judgment, thus bringing salvation to Nineveh. So here we are in John chapter 3, verse 1. And, you know, I can't help but wonder what percentage even of our own lives... We've still held on to, we hold on to ourselves comfortably at home in the proverbial belly of the fish. Keeping to ourselves. What, what great work does Christ have waiting, prepared for us to do if we'll simply awaken from our slumber, make ourselves available to Him as Jonah came to do. And, and you would really be surprised, quite honestly, as a pastor, how often... Uh, a pastor like myself and others, hear Christians lament. And, and they will lament from the pit of their souls that they just know that God has ordained for them some great work to do, some task, but they just haven't figured out what it is. I don't know what it is that God wants me to do, they will say. And uh, they can't figure it out. For some reason they feel that God hasn't revealed to them their life's mission. Things haven't fallen into order, but they just really know that there must be something exceedingly great that God has to accomplish and that they'd be part of. And I want to assure you that God definitely does have something great for you. But like Jonah, perhaps you or I to a level or all of us to some level or another have refused to accept the mission. And perhaps until we or you recognize that your great mission might not be quite as glamorous as you might have originally thought, until you take that step out in faith beyond what you're used to or what you're uh, prepared for personally, you just might remain in the dark for a while yet. You might not actualize what God has for you personally to do. In fact, it is potentially possible that you could die in that state, in that condition, that you had never actualized all of your potential. And uh, you might sit on the sidelines, as we spoke last week. God has a royal priesthood, lots of people that He can use, that can step in, that He can motivate to accomplish His tasks. And uh, some prefer to sit on the sideline and do so for a good long time. And the potential... For a spiritual revival that we've been talking about for some time in America, that potential might not be realized until we willingly loosen our grip on what our perceptions are of what God wants us to do. Our self-centered priorities that we think God should be doing or that we want to do. And, And we need to do that so that God can place into our hands something better. Something better for us to do. Because if, God, if you are a Christian here today, God has something available to you that is an exceedingly great mission. The problem is, we've most not likely 
thought of the mission that God has because we've been dreaming up missions in our own mind. You ever done that? Um, we, we have to understand that our personal imaginations, what goes on in our minds, isn't where God goes to plan out His divine purpose. He doesn't go into our minds and wonder what we think we want to do. We need to look to Him for what He is doing. Uh, that's unrealistic to think that God is going to take our imagination and use it for His purposes. Uh, instead, it's very likely you'll have to release your grip on some of those things that you've imagined, some of those dreams, to finally accept and achieve something great for God. Something exceedingly great in His eyes. You know, many of you have probably heard or remember or have heard part of the story of when I was called uh, to shepherd uh, a church of God. Shepherd a congregation. I didn't know which congregation. Uh, I simply knew unequivocally that God had placed that calling on my life. It, it was reaffirmed through those who I was ministering to at the time. It was reaffirmed through my wife, my extended family members, and also through my own pastor at my, at my previous church, the elders there, that they reaffirmed it. And upon this calling, receiving this calling, I began to imagine in my mind what the congregation, what the ministry would look like. Immediately I thought, well, first of all, it's going to be a non-denominational church. Um, second, I wanted to be sure that it wasn't a church plant. I didn't want a church plant. I wanted an existing congregation. Then I continued. I pictured a church that was completely free of debt. I also um, thought that it would be a church that had one of those picturesque sanctuaries. You know, one of those great ones with a high vaulted ceiling and all the stonework. Uh, I pictured a, uh, a church where the front would be with tall columns and, and stone and imagining things about the entrance and other things. Oh, you know, the church would probably seat several hundred. And of course, it would be located, as I've told you before, in North Texas. At least it would be located somewhere in Texas. Folks, God can put, can place a very compelling and godly desire on your heart. But we must be cautious of how we fill in the blanks for Him. God hasn't invited our imaginations to fill in all the blanks. He's asked us to be willing to serve, be willing to go, and He assures us that He will fill in the blanks for us as we go. Jonah now has agreed to at least go, at least be willing to go in chapter 3, somewhere that he had likely, uh, most probably had never been before, that is to Nineveh. So let's read this passage beginning in chapter 3, the first four verses. Beginning it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This probably isn't the mission that Jonah had imagined for himself. But it's still an exceedingly great mission. 
Nineveh was a very great city. In fact, this is the third time we read in this letter that, that it's restated this way. And in fact, the phrase in verse 3 literally says uh, in the original Hebrew, Nineveh was a great city to God. That's why we translate it an exceedingly great city. It was a great city to God. No wonder the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Go. God had something He wanted to do. God was going to do it. Nineveh was very important. It was an important place. Why? A couple things come to mind immediately. First, it had a huge population. There were a lot of human souls there. Very big city. If you remember, uh, when I initially gave the overview of this book, weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at the overview from archaeology standpoint, and um, the distance around the district of Nineveh was about 60 miles. You remember that? And, and physically, we learned that it was about four times the size of Port St. Lucie. And we learned that the population density per square mile was similar to Port St. Lucie, about 2,000 people per square mile. Archaeologists tell us that probably 600,000 people lived in this metropolitan area of Nineveh. The inner city itself would have been defended, uh, at least would have defended the strategic businesses, government offices, and it was protected by a wall that was eight miles around, and the wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high. That's almost the width of the sanctuary. The sanctuary, I think, is about 60 feet wide. That's how massive this was. It was a very great city indeed. Secondly, the city was great or important to God because of the level of immorality that was being practiced there. It was gross immorality. And there comes a point where a culture becomes so corrupt that God is going to step in and either reform it or wipe it out. We see that repeatedly in Scripture. In Genesis 6, verse 5, this is just previous to Noah now, God says, "...the wickedness of man was great on the earth." and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. It had gotten very, very bad. And then God, we know, preserved Noah and his family through the ark. And because of the magnitude of the immorality, how it had grown, God wiped everyone else out, folks. Individuals and cultures, if not restrained either by the Spirit of God or by the rule of law, uh, due to the sinful nature of the flesh that we deal with, it will degenerate. A culture will degenerate if there is not a stabilizing influence, either through the Holy Spirit of God, or through the rule of law. And, and the condition is usually progressive. After Noah then came the time of Abraham, and due to the progression of the, of the behavior that was practiced in Sodom and Gomorrah, we learn in Genesis Chapter 19, it says this. Please pay attention. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and God overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This describes a total destruction. Uh, our Bible says that God overthrew them. 
Overthrew. This Hebrew word that we translate overthrew, it implies total destruction. Literally, it says upside down. It's flipped upside down. And this term overthrew, it's found in two forms in the Old Testament, both in verb and noun form. And it's repeatedly used in the Old Testament. It's used almost exclusively for Sodom and Gomorrah. Almost exclusively. How God destroyed them. There are two locations other, beyond that that it was used. One location's in Isaiah chapter 1. In, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the people had, been, had, had, re, had just rebelled against God. The, Israel had. And God prophesies that there's going to be a final destruction of Israel, which is later experienced with the Babylonian captivity. And even in that context, Isaiah chapter 1, God compares Israel, where he uses this word, to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, where the term Israel was going to be overthrown. Uh, that phrase is used. There remains one location in the Bible where that word overthrown is used. Any guess where that might be? Verse 4 of our passage with Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Will be turned upside down. So what would this imply then, if God is going to overthrow Nineveh, what does it imply on the nature of their sins? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Uh, Why did God tell Jonah initially in chapter 1, verse 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me the fact is that god is going to intervene and completely overthrow this culture because they had turned exceedingly wicked yet he is going to intervene we don't know exactly, it doesn't state exactly how far it had gone, but, but it implies that it might have approached the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. The wording does. Uh, people were probably being victimized. They were probably being abused. There was likely little respect for law and order, as we'll see in our passage next week. When you look back at Sodom and Gomorrah, when, when Lot was approached, it said, bring out those men to us so we can have our way with them. No respect of law and order. Near complete anarchy. In fact, God spoke to Abraham saying, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their people were crying out. And their sin is exceedingly grave. That was in Genesis 18, verse 20. Folks, This is potentially the next bus stop in America. Potentially. If God doesn't, in His mercy, intervene, bring a revival, send His Holy Spirit, we could see these types of things in America, potentially. Twenty years ago, we heard protests. They went something like this. We simply want to have the right to love whom we want to love in our own homes, behind the privacy of our own doors. 
Do you remember that? About 20 years ago. That was the cry. We simply want the privacy in our own homes to be our own space. Today the cry is this. Nobody should be able to tell us what we are doing is wrong. Christians must be silenced. Folks, folks, the next bus stop is, if God doesn't do something in America, bring your people out to us and hand them over. That is a very real potential. Nineveh was at least approaching, possibly at this point. Make no doubt about it, God finds these types of sins and other gross sexual immorality as exceedingly offensive. In fact, there's a theory that we're going to touch on next week uh, concerning the declaration of the king. The king of Nineveh ordered both man and beast to be covered with sackcloth. Both Both man and beast. And I think you know what that might imply. The answer is found in Leviticus 18. And that's a chapter of the Mosaic Law that that prohibited various forms of sexual perversion. We'll look at that next week. But from what we have learned about Nineveh, are all cultures and nations equally sinful? Across the globe, is, is every place equally sinful? No. Some cultures are more ungodly than others. Some sins are more offensive to God than others. And I'm going to be honest here. This is why I brought this up, comparing nations. Our American culture is slipping, folks. No doubt about that. Not going to deny that at all. But there is a certain segment of our culture, different segments of our culture, who basically want to blame America for everything that is wrong in the world. Have you heard that? America is at fault. We we cause the flaws. Some describe us as imperialists. We're responsible for everything that is wrong with the world. That is inaccurate. America is not responsible for everything that is wrong with the world. We are responsible for what is wrong here. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we're obviously flawed, but we're not what is, is historically wrong with the world over the last 200 years. America has been a liberating, both a liberating and a stabilizing influence around the world. Traditionally, we've been the good guys. That's why it's so important for us to cry out to God that He will reform this nation. We have been the good guys. We joined the Allies in 1917 against Germany, Austria, and Hungary. And we all know what happened there. U.S. forces under General Patton, Patton excuse me, liberated Paris in 1945. They had been controlled by the Nazis for five years. We marched in along with others. Make no mistake... We've been responsible for some debacles, right? No doubt about that. But by and large, America has stood for freedom and the rule of law around the globe. By and large, that's what we've stood for. So when anyone implies, movie stars, politicians, whoever it might be, implies that we are the problem around the world, we need to be put in our place somehow that we're the reason that Islam has turned radical 
that they've gotten angry. Some, some reason, we're, we're the reason they turn violent. We will hear that. Something that we've done. Some, for some reason, America has to be weakened on the world stage so that peace can flourish. You can politely say, you don't know your history. You don't know your history. But to remain a stabilizing force, a positive economic influence for the good around the globe, this is a fact right here. The United States, we are going to have to get our house back in order. We are going to have to be reformed. We are going to have to repent. Because, Folks, we've drifted away from Christianity, from the Bible, from the rule of law, from morality. We're idolaters. America has drifted away. We've got a lot of improvement we can do. With that said, there are good nations in the world. There are evil nations in the world. Assyria and its capital, Nineveh, was exceedingly bad. It was an exceedingly wicked city. To the point that God threatened to wipe him off the map. Them. And, uh, but first, God is going to invite them to repent through the preaching of a prophet named Jonah. God's inviting a nation to repent. Assyria, Nineveh, the city, the capital. And to say the least, you know, in Jonah's mind, Nineveh wasn't exactly a choice ministry assignment. Wasn't what he imagined would be on his resume. Didn't really want to go there. You know, Ninevites, they they weren't good Christian folk. Jonah had to get around some people who were kind of dirty in their lives in order to speak to them. He would have never envisioned himself going there, speaking to those types of people, but those people there were important to God. They're important to God. Make no mistake, America is important to God. I wasn't going to mention this. Just this morning, I'm thinking here, so often, and it's true, in God's sovereignty and His power, He can do whatever He wants to do. He can use whatever nation he wants to do. He's going to raise up Assyria, we know, through the preaching of Amos and Hosea. He's going to let, set Israel aside for a season. So God can do what he wants to do. And sometimes we get in that mentality that, you know what? America is important. God's going to do what God's going to do. No, folks, America is very important to God. What we can do here to reform our country, to spread Christianity, to spread the gospel around the world through missions and other things is exceedingly important to God. For Jonah, this was an exceedingly great mission opportunity. He didn't realize that at first. Wasn't real happy about it. Folks, the greatest ministries are not the ones that you have all planned out for yourself. They're not the ones that you've mapped out. They're ones that are going to come from God to accomplish His purposes. The ones that God is going to place into your lives. That way it's easy to look back after many years of ministry and seeing people come to faith. You can look back and say, well, I would have never done that. I would have never thought of that. I would have never planned that. We got a really great God. Did some exceedingly great things. We can all see that in our lives. And in verse 2, God gives Jonah the same commission he did back in chapter 1. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Then he adds this, Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So the message is coming from who? God, right? 
Message is coming from God, delivered through a messenger, Jonah. But the message is God's. It doesn't originate from Jonah, as it does so often today originate from man, right? How many messages, sermons, talks have you heard that just originate from man? The thrust of the message has to originate from God. That's, that's the push. That's the power. It's in His Word. Then, then the pastor, the preacher, the teacher has the latitude to provide application as it aligns to, to different situations in the world. But God has to speak first. In fact, I would say it is essential, has always been essential, but especially in our day, that pastors apply biblical principles to current events. I believe this is where the pulpits have failed in large part across America for decades. The failure is, that failure is, is to apply biblical principles to what is going on around us. We just talk about the Bible. We learn facts, sometimes too many facts for our, for our little brains to even process. But we need to apply. And uh, it's part of the reason that we are where we are as a nation Pastor Weiler and myself, many others here I know as well, teachers, elders, others, we have committed ourselves to the fact that we're not going to be vague. We're not going to be vague. Uh, renowned professor at Dallas Seminary, you might have heard of him. He's a late Howard Hendricks, taught there for nearly 60 years. Just amazing the fact that when I was hearing him teach, when I got to go there years back, had the, just the blessing of that, such a godly man, it's... Chuck Swindoll had also sat in his class. Isn't that amazing, the influence that a man can give for decades when he just gives himself to the work of God? But anyhow, Howard Hendricks once said this, A mist from the pulpit leaves a fog in the pew. You ever feel like sometimes you're getting a little spray bottle mist from the pulpit? Leaves, leaves a fog you know, I, I think something got said about the Bible. Uh, I think I heard some verse quoted somewhere randomly in the message that I heard. Um, but it's just kind of foggy. I don't really know what it means or how it applies. That happens so much today. For over, over 100 years, pulpits have left a fog in America. There's been a, been a fog by and large, not all pulpits, but there's been a fog by and large as to what is right and what is wrong. People are living in a fog. And, and they don't know that there's a fog of gender distinction. There, there's a, a fog of which bathroom to use. There, there's a fog of the definition of the sanctity of human life and how it should be treated. There's, there's just this fog. But the Bible hasn't left Christians sitting in a fog. We're not in a fog. So where the Bible is clear, we have to be clear. Jonah is now determined to be obedient and clear with the preaching of God's Word. And he's going to see some results. In verse 3 it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, that implies the size of the city. It doesn't, doesn't imply how far, how long it took the distance to Nineveh. We don't know exactly how long it took Jonah to get to Nineveh. Uh, if he was spit out onto dry land where he got on the ship initially. If that is the location he was spit up there in Joppa, it would have been 550 miles overland uh, to Nineveh. We aren't certain. But once there, 
it doesn't take long for Jonah to get attention and to get a following from people. Verse 4, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, and here's God's specific message, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What the writer is trying to communicate here is that although the city is a three days walk, Jonah saw results on the first day's walk. Immediately he saw results. This suggests an immediate positive response by the Ninevites. An acknowledgement by the Ninevites. And we see that in verse 5, which we'll look at next week. They even responded prior to the king even hearing about it. They responded to Jonah's message. What does this response indicate? Well, it indicates they knew how great their sin was. They knew how bad it was. They were aware of how far their culture had declined. They weren't in a fog about that. They knew what they were doing. There's been all kinds of theories about why Nineveh responded so quickly to Jonah's preaching. Um, some, some conclude that uh, it might have been because his skin was bleached white from being in the belly of, of the fish for three days. Uh, there might have been some kind of aura about him that they saw when he, when he came into Nineveh that caused them to respond, acknowledge their need to repent. The problem Bible doesn't give us any evidence to that being the cause. It doesn't say that it is. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that Jonah's appearance was a factor. So we can't be certain that it was. What the Bible and well-documented history, extra-biblical history, does tell us is that Nineveh was an exceedingly sinful culture. They knew what they were. In their hearts, they knew what they were. And the human heart has a natural law written on it of right and wrong. A lot of times we refer to that as a conscience, right? People know most of the time what's right and wrong to an extent. And and Nineveh was convicted of their sins at the preaching of God's word. That's what happened. They could honestly say to themselves, we have committed indecent things in the eyes of the Lord. We deserve judgment. This prophet's telling us there's going to be judgment. And they're like, whoa, you're right. This Jonah guy is right. And Jonah was almost certainly, you would expect, dressed as a Hebrew. Maybe his skin was bleached or bright white in some way. Regardless, they knew he was from out of town. And as the crowd began to gather... They probably asked something similar to what the sailors had asked him back on the ship. Do you remember that back in chapter 1, verse 8? Who are you? They said, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And in chapter 1, Jonah responded to them saying, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Just because God's message was, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown, doesn't imply in itself that Jonah didn't say anything else. He very well could have said some other things. That's what chapter 1 teaches us. He had told them other things. And um, Jonah had told more than what's written down in these four short chapters of this book. And though what we have in the Bible is an accurate representation of human history, it doesn't exhaust human history. It was never meant to. 
We don't have it all written down in this book. That would be kind of ridiculous and unnecessarily cumbersome, I believe. Have to carry your Bible around in a payloader. There's no way that we could have everything and still have it functional. What we have is the story of God's redemption across time, cover to cover, in different peoples and in different eras. What did the Apostle John say about the life of Christ? Right at the end. You know, at the, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that this next year that might be our next step, is to study through the life of Christ after we're finished with Jonah. We're in prayer about that right now. I'm in prayer. I'd like you to pray too where we go from here. But um, we very well could be going into a gospel and studying the life of Christ next. This very last statement in John's gospel, chapter 21, verse 25 says, And there were also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. A lot of amazing things happened. A lot of amazing things. The people of Nineveh, they surely had questions about Jonah when he arrived. Like, what is your name? My name is Jonah. And you said you were a Hebrew prophet. You are the Hebrew prophet Jonah. Yes, that's what I told you. Now, here's some speculation you might like that is built around some biblical evidence, some historical evidence. We learned at the outset of this book that for decades the Assyrians had militarily dominated Israel. Remember? They they had overpowered Israel. They had taken Israel's lands. They had basically had their way with Israel for a very long time. That's why that, that big bad Assyrian general Naaman was so feared just 50 years earlier than what we're studying here. But then King Jeroboam II rose to power in Israel, remember? What happened? Do you remember? I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. 2 Kings 14.25 There it says that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. That's a really big area. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which God spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So as Jeroboam II became the most powerful king to ever rule the ten northern tribes, restoring their borders at the prophecy of the word of the Lord as was spoken through Jonah, Do you actually think this is the first time that Nineveh ever heard the name Jonah? Doubtful. Doubtful. Um, The Assyrian forces that were repeatedly pushed back, repeatedly defeated by Jeroboam's troops. Is it reasonable to expect that that major influence behind Jeroboam's success, Israel's success, was the fact that God was prophesying this success ahead of time, ahead of the battles, probably numerous times, through a prophet named Jonah? Do you think that word somehow reached the ears of the Assyrian army who was in retreat? They're beating us. This prophet Jonah is one of the guys that said it was going to happen before it even happened. Is it reasonable to assume that the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, had heard exactly who Jonah was? Reasonable. And for decades now, Assyria 
had been greatly weakened. Their influence on the world scene, it had all but dissolved. They were getting picked apart by bands of raiders from the north. And on top of that, if my timeline for Jonah's trip is accurate, Nineveh had just recently experienced two severe famines and a total solar eclipse that occurred, occurred on uh, 763 B.C. And we, we know, too, from history that it's well documented that Assyrians attributed famines and plagues and solar eclipses to divine judgment. They saw it as God's judgment. Then you got this guy Jonah who arrives. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You will be overturned. Maybe Jonah had a bleached look about him. Maybe even the fish story preceded him. But neither was necessary. Neither was necessary. For Nineveh to to be ripe for revival, they simply needed to acknowledge they were sin and hear the word of God. Is that how it happened with us? Exactly how it happened with us. We knew that we were sinners. We heard the word of God preached. Before we go, a couple theories you may have heard um, that, that I personally don't believe influenced Nineveh. Uh, you'll have to decide for yourself whether there's merit to these. Maybe you've heard them before. Whether or not you agree, that's, that's fine. Um, these are out there. So I might as well make you aware of them. I have a map, if you can throw that up. First, I don't personally think that this huge fish swam somewhere around 2,000 miles out in to cross the Mediterranean and then came around the outside of Africa around the uh, Cape below there out into the Indian Ocean and then way over by Kuwait up there and then up into the Persian Gulf and it would be the Tigris River up there in Iraq. That's how far the fish would have had to swim if, this is the theory, that he spit Jonah out in front of eyewitnesses at Nineveh. Because Nineveh was on the Tigris River. That's a theory that he spit, spit it out, and that's the reason that, that uh, the people believed. It's because Jonah was actually spit out of the fish there. Um, the perimeter of Africa is about 19,000 miles. So we're looking at approaching 2,000 miles to go all the way around out there and up the, the Tigris somewhere in there. Um, that would be 278 miles per hour. Or that's, that's if it took the whole 72 hours, the whole three days. It's not a widely held view. It's a view. You, you've probably heard something of that before. Um, usually a view convinced that, that people must see something miraculous to believe. You know, um, that would pose a problem, however, because if that were necessary, how then would Nineveh had believed if Jonah would have gone on the first commission. Because when he first called to go, it wouldn't have been through the fish if he would have obeyed the first time around. So there are problems with that theologically. People don't have to witness miracles to recognize that they're sinners and need to be saved. Jesus told Doubting Thomas, Blessed are they who believe yet have not seen. They don't have to see anything. Second notion that Nineveh uh, might have had there is some merit to this. We don't know how much. It isn't said in, in, in the Bible. They believed in a fish god. In fact, Nineveh is said to have been established by a fish god. Part fish, part man. There is some accuracy to that. They did. 
And the theory is that if they had visibly seen this fish spit out a man, which would have had to travel around the Cape of Africa, but the theory is if they would have seen the fish spit out of a man, they would have accepted him as genuine because it would have been like their fish god. Two big problems that with that. The first is Jonah doesn't interject in this text a fish god. Second, thus far in Jonah, when we've read the sailors and, and seen them and, and cry out to their false gods, that didn't help them, by the way, does Yahweh, does God generally permit himself to be uh, intermingled with, confused with, just, uh, attributed to other false gods? No. Generally, he doesn't get intermingled with, with false gods. As Elijah uh, went against the prophets of Baal, there, God usually distinguishes himself clearly from other gods. So that's a problem uh, with that theory that they had seen him spit out and such. You're just going to run into those. And I thought, well, you might hear someone preach on this next week and, and say, I wonder why Pastor John didn't bring those up. I brought them up. The moral of the story is that Nineveh was convicted of their sins at the word of God. They heard the word of the Lord. They, they discovered there was going to be judgment looming. And they turned from their sins. They turned from their sins. Verse 5 indicates they believed in God. What have we learned from Jonah's exceedingly great mission that he went out on? What can we apply to our mission Number one, I would say if you want to be used to the utmost of your potential, your ministry probably isn't going to look exactly like you imagined it at first. Maybe it will be a little more simple than what you originally thought. Not everyone goes to Italy. Not, uh, perhaps you will go to an exotic location. That might happen. Uh, maybe to a different people than you had planned in your own wisdom. Maybe God doesn't want you to go to Nineveh. Maybe he wants you to stay right here and minister in Port St. Lucie. Number two, you must obey and accept God's call. can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, you may have something in your life that's preventing it. There may be a sin in your life that is preventing uh, the fullness that God could use you. Something's interfere possibly with ministry. Indecision's not an excuse. You can't just say, I don't know, so I'm not going to begin. You have to begin. You have to start. Number three, when you go out into ministry, every one of us here, we are not relying on our own contrived message to impact people. Any truly successful ministry and church is going to be successful as a result of proclaiming God's word faithfully. That's what happened with Jonah. Number four, no sinner is saved or changed by telling them that they're okay in their present sins. No Nineveh, God doesn't love you just as you are. That's one of the biggest lies of our days. God loves you just as you are. Don't worry about your sins. Don't worry about your carousing parties. Don't worry about the level of your drunkenness and your drunkenness. Uh, don't worry about whatever's going on in your life. God just accepts you just the way you are. That would imply you don't need spiritual rebirth or a change. That's not accurate. That's inaccurate. 
God demands that we change, and He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to change. It's called the spiritual rebirth. In fact, I, I would say that one of the, the most quote, kind of hateful things you could do, if I could use that word, is to tell someone that you're, God just loves you the way you are if they're in a sin. It's destroying their lives. It's separating them from God. It's disobedience to God's word. You're not doing them any favor, favor by telling them that. We need the spiritual rebirth through Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.9, Pastor Weiler shared this with you a few weeks ago. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's, the, here's how it continues. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There's a change. We need to see our culture changed. We need a spiritual change. Just as in Nineveh, uh, people today, they realize they're in sin. Much of the time, what they actually need, some even want, is someone to come shoot straight with them. Tell them exactly the truth, what's wrong with their lives. Because usually, there's some level of conviction. Not all. Some are just cold. But they already know. In their heart, they're crying out for some help. And uh, we need to come honestly and sincerely to them and say, Buddy, you're not alright. Friend, you're drinking way too much in your life. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. You're not, going to be a hus- you're not being a good husband, friend. Um, those are the types of conversations we have to have. Let me also stress, it needs to be truthful, but in a polite and respectful demeanor. That's our job. That's our mission. It's an exceedingly great mission, folks. And uh, is that what you've envisioned for your ministry? Have you considered that maybe we've been forcing our own imagination on what we should be doing that could be maybe not completely wrong, but not exactly what God has for us. In closing, I was, was and still am very confident of a pastoral call. Uh, in my mind, I imagined quite a few things God didn't have planned. It was my mind that planned them. How many did God fulfill? You know, a couple. An established church. It wasn't a new plant. Praise the Lord. Very thankful for that. A non-denominational church. Not that I have a problem with denominational churches that are faithful to God's Word. I'd just rather not be tied to a synod or to a conference that, you know, administrates from a different state that doesn't know your local um, situation. That's why I like the non-denominational. So those two. The rest that I envisioned, God taught me, wasn't all that important wasn't necessary. We need to do what God has for us here to do. Let's pray.